Hey, I'm J. Paul Boehmer. You might remember me as one from Star Trek Voyager or the Nazi captain from The Killing Game or Mistral from Carbon Creek on Enterprise or the Nazi captain on Enterprise or Vornar on Deep Space Nine or the Klingon and Klingon Academy or a voice on Bridge Commander. And right now, you're listening to Trek Untold. Trek Untold, Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. There's some one-off characters in the Star Trek universe that you'll never forget. From Gary Lockwood to Sarah Silverman, Joan Collins to Kelsey Grammer, Saul Rubinek to Famke Jensen, and many, many more. And I've been lucky enough to have a few of those performers on this show already, and I'm happy to add today another person to that list. Today's guest happened to play two parts that were quite notable and arguably a few more over those many appearances that were no slouches either. And that actor is J. Paul Bamer. You'd recognize J. Paul from his multiple roles in the Star Trek universe, including his work in several other video games, including Klingon Academy and Bridge Commander. In the franchise proper, he first appeared as a Nazi officer in the Voyager two-parter from Season 4, The Killing Game, and then one season later in the episode Drone as the Borg named One. He then headed on to DS9 for their final season episode, Tacking into the Wind as a Cardassian officer, and then finished his run on Enterprise in the Season 3 finale and Season 4 premiere, Zero Hour, and Stormfront, and this time, once again, playing a Nazi officer. But right before that final Nazi role, he was in one other very excellent episode of Enterprise, and that would be Carbon Creek from Season 2. There, he played the Vulcan named Mistral, and really, it's easily one of the best episodes of Enterprise, bar none. And a big part of that was J. Paul's work as this alien trying to find his way home, or perhaps trying to find a new home. But beyond Star Trek, you've seen J. Paul in many theatrical roles that we're going to discuss today, as well as films and TV shows like The Young and the Restless, The Mentalist, Frasier, The Thomas Crown Affair, Judging Amy, Lost, and others. And more recently in the world of sci-fi, on the Orville as a few different aliens that we will discuss towards the end of this interview. J. Paul had some very hefty roles in Star Trek, and aside from the very peculiar and unique fact that he is a two-time Star Trek Nazi, his time in the franchise was definitely unforgettable. We have some absolutely untold tales, and it was undoubtedly one of my favorite conversations I had while making this current season. I'm privileged to now introduce J. Paul Bamer to Trek Untold, and I hope you enjoy this excellent conversation with him. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. 
If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at trekuntold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on screen is a person who you've seen many times in Star Trek in a lot of different roles, really interesting ones, too. Uh, this is a really cool chat. I'm, I'm very looking forward to this one. We're joined by Mr. J. Paul Bamer. Jay Paul, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you, Matthew? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm going to have a lot of fun saying Jay Paul. That's a lot of fun to say, I have to admit. Right? <laughs> we're going to see if we can get busy. <laughs> yeah, we're going to see if we can get down to some of the uh, the secret origins of the name, in fact. But let's uh, let's just start at the very top here. And I'd like to ask you the question I ask all my guests. And that's sure. Jay Paul. So fun to say. Uh, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching it? I absolutely, I grew up watching it. I remember. Coming home from school, uh, and I, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and they showed it every day on WKEF-TV in Dayton, Ohio. And it was on just after I got off the school bus, so I could run in and I could watch Star Trek and also uh, the Batman reruns. So they were on one right after the other. Uh, and that's my, that's my earliest memory of watching it. So. That was a lot of campy shows back to back right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So you mentioned you were born uh, and living in Dayton, Ohio at that age. Uh, so, you know, it's part of your secret origin story, if you will. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, who your parents were, what they did, and uh, what little Jay Paul wanted to be when he grew up? Well, little Jay Paul wanted to be uh, either a teacher or an astronaut. Um, and uh, I was fascinated by Star Trek, of course. And lost in space, uh, but mostly Star Trek. Um, and my dad was a, a an engineer at General Motors, which was had a big hub in Dayton. And my mom worked at a, uh, a flower shop or a, a nursery nearby. And uh, yeah, so yeah, it's interesting, you know, because basically one half of your parentage is engineering, very technical minded, and the other half is very yeah. organic. That's kind of a nice contrast to have. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious to see how it's going to affect uh, our discussion as we go along and see how those <laughs> things influence what you did here. But we'll find uh, out. <laughs> yeah, we're going to find out today. That's the goal, Jay Paul. So, uh, you know, along the way, how did you discover performing? When did acting start to become a thing that was in your, your point of view? Uh, when I was in middle school, uh, we did a the school did a play about Count Dracula. I can't even remember the name of it. It was a, you know, a middle school play. And I got to play Renfield. Uh, and I thought it was really great because I got to be in a coffin for a lot of the show. That was fun. And I remember uh, telling everybody that, oh, I want to be an actor and I'm going to be on Star Trek. 
of course, you know, I didn't know that it wasn't on TV anymore because it was on TV every day and everybody else thought I was full of, you know, what? So, yeah. Well, jokes on them. We'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, did you go to a, a university or a performing school to kind of continue your education in acting? Yeah, I, uh, my family moved to Texas when I was 16 uh, and I was in high, I finished my high school there and I competed in uh, what is known as UIL theater competition, university industrial something league. And I was doing a play called Tea House of the August Moon playing uh, Sakini, a Japanese character, which also Marlon Brando played in the film. And uh who then became my uh, junior college professor, saw me, he was a judge, and he called me uh, at school a week later and offered me a scholarship, a full tuition scholarship and a stipend to go to junior college at the time. And I sort of was shocked. I said, I'm a junior. I'm sorry, I can't really accept this right now. And he said, no worries, Uh, we'll just hold it for you. So I called him the next year and I said, uh, I don't know if you remember me. And he goes, of course I remember you. Um, and he said, and the offer still stands. So I graduated high school and I went right to a place called Kilgore Junior College uh, in East Texas. Uh, Kilgore is uh, famous for uh, the oil strike that happened in the early late 20s, early 30s, and also for Van Cliburn, who won, the, uh, I think, the Tchaikovsky competition in Russia. He actually uh, secreted himself into Russia to compete, and he won. Huh. Um, and I was able to, right after junior college, I started, uh, I was part of the first season of what then became the Texas Shakespeare Festival, run by the college and my professor. And then I went to Southern Methodist University and finished my uh, undergraduate training there, took a year off, worked in Dallas, and then I got my master's degree at the University of Delaware. So how does Jay Paul go from Texas to Hollywood? I, uh, well, I went from uh, Delaware to New York uh, and started working pretty much nonstop regionally um, in, in theater. And are you doing like, when you mentioned that, were you doing off Broadway in New York or you just mean like you're kind of touring nationally in the East coast? Touring nationally doing uh, regional theaters. Uh, I, I uh, worked in Cleveland at the great lakes theater festival. I worked in um, Dallas. I played Hamlet at the Dallas Shakespeare festival Um, all over the place, really. Um, And I, I had done a play in New York, off off Broadway on 42nd Street that a friend of mine wrote called Haplet Prince of Brooklyn, uh, which was sort of a a take on this theater company doing uh, uh, Death of a Salesman and then Hamlet. And then the artistic director of the theater says, this is crazy. We're not going to do this. These, What we're going to do is we're going to throw them all together, put them in one play. And so he, it was a really raucous comedy. And um, so we did that off Broadway and I had gone out 
for more regional theater. And about a year later, my friend called me and he said, you know, we're going to do this play in, in LA in West Hollywood at, um, Oh God, the globe theater. I can't even remember what street it's on. Um, and he said, you want to come? And I said, yeah, why not? So I came out uh, thinking I'm never staying in LA. I'm going to go back to New York. Um, we did the play. It got some great reviews. And while I was here, uh, I was house sitting for uh, someone uh, who was out shooting a movie. And my agent in New York at the time said, I've got a play for you if you want to audition. Uh, it's a Dion Busico play. It was very famous in the uh, 19th century. And uh, it's called The Chakran. And it starts in Seattle and then it moves to Boston. And you'll have a month in between. And so I said, sure. And I auditioned for it and I, I got it, which was really great. It was a great, great pot boiler, Irish romantic comedy that's three hours long. In fact, if you guys remember um, The Age of Innocence, Michelle Pfeiffer and Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, Winona Ryder, there's a scene where they uh, go to the theater and uh, the British soldier is in a room in the, in the theater that they're seeing and he turns around and he leaves. And then before he turns around, he, before he leaves, he turns around and sees this woman on the, on the hearth of the fireplace crying and he goes and he touches her ribbon. That's the play. It goes around. I know. Um, All these stories have I, a journey. <laughs> I had gone to ba- I had gone to Seattle to do this show we had a month off before we went to Boston. And in that month, um, my agent called and he said, I've got something for you, which you're going to thank me for. And I said, what is it? And he goes, you're going to go in for Star Trek at Paramount um, for a Nazi. And he said, I'm perfect for it. <laughs> so I, I was like super excited because I grew up and wanted to be on Star Trek. And uh, I went in and I read for the casting director, who was Ron Serma, who's now a very dear friend of mine. And he said, he told me later, they were having such a hard time finding this particular role. And he said, I knew the minute we finished the first sentence that you were the guy. And he said, and then I brought you into the producers. And he said, they had they'd really had a hard time finding this guy, apparently. And I went into the producers and he said they were all sitting behind him facing me. And he said, when you started reading, I could I could feel the director smile. And he said, and I I was I was totally gobsmacked by that. Uh, so I left the audition, got into my car headed back to my apartment uh, where I was staying then, uh, which was maybe 10 miles away. And I got a call from my agent in the car and he said, where are you? And I said, I'm, I'm headed home. And he goes, no, 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 go back. <laughs> I said, what? And he goes, yeah, you got to go back to Paramount right now. Go back. So I went back and uh, I, I didn't know what was going on. And um 
I walked on the lot. I went to Ron's office and he said, you have a fitting right now. <laughs> so I went and I had the fitting and I started shooting um, the first, the first episode uh, that like two days later. And I, I think that, that episode was only, I only had one day of work. And then the next episode was much bigger. Yeah, I'll, I'll ask you more questions about those in a little bit. Sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of interesting that basically it's Star Trek that put you in Hollywood and kept you there. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and I also find it is a little bit humorous to think that, by the way, it's like someone said, hey, you're perfect to play this Aryan soldier. That's got to be a weird <laughs> thing. It's like you got the gig, but also this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, you know, I do want to ask you about a few other TV roles you had uh, before sure, we do get into the Trek stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I want to just press you a little bit on the play you were talking about, because I got to hear more about Hamlet and Death of a Salesman and how you guys combine that. That is like, like, how does that work out? I need to hear about this. If you remember anything about that. Well, it's been a long time. Um, we were the the premise of the show is that we were a company produce uh, doing two plays in rep. OK, Uh so and, show within a show kind of framing device. Yeah. Okay. And we started the the death of a salesman. It's it's really been a long time, but the death of a salesman piece we started, and the artistic goes, no, 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 no. Gotta do Hamlet. Let's do that. And so we did that. And and then he 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 said, No, 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 you gotta do it faster, faster. And it's gotta have you know, and he goes, you know what? We're going to change it. We're going to do, we're going to blow up American theater. We're going to put them all together and you guys go. And so uh, he goes, but we need a minute. We're going to take an intermission. These guys got to prepare. And then the next half hour of the show was just the combination of the two, which was fun because the, the guy who wrote it writes impeccable verse. So the whole thing was in verse. So, yeah. That is crazy. That is a nuts sound. Yeah. I want to see that. Someone's got to bring that back. That sounds really cool. It's a fun play. It's a yeah. fun play. And I played in that one. I played Happy and then Hamlet and then Haplet. <laughs> that, how do you even keep trying? That's crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Though. Uh, so, yeah, I, let's talk about a few other things quick, real quick before we go into our Trek stuff. And uh, sure. I was able to catch you in, in an episode of Frasier that you did. Uh, yeah. where you were in the episode that was titled Semi-Decent Proposal. Great title. Yeah. Uh, you play a character named Neil who is competing for the affection of a certain woman against Kelsey Grammer. So you're working yeah. side by side, face to face with Frazier himself. So yeah. uh, I'd love to hear a little bit if you have any memories uh, of being on that set and working with Kelsey. That was a really fun set. Uh, I got to not just Kelsey, I got to I, I met all of the cast because how they shoot a sitcom is they sh they rehearse all week and then they shoot it in one night, however long it takes to shoot. So I got to meet everybody and also got to work with uh, Gene Smart, who is just adorable, uh, which I have another story about that is Trek related. Okay. Um, and Patricia Clarkson, who I was stealing from Frasier. Um, and, and that was really fun. That was my first real experience in sitcom television. Um, and it was also really interesting because at the time I was also working as a voice and speech teacher at uh, Los Angeles County High School for the Performing Arts. And one of my students was Spencer Grammer, who's Kelsey's daughter. And I, I honestly didn't put that together when in, at school that she was Kelsey Grammer's daughter. And the night we were shooting, she was in the audience. and. So it was a really nice thing because 
Kelsey was very interested in hearing about how she was doing. And we had a really lovely conversation. I got to go over and say hi to Spencer, who's lovely. Um, And uh, yeah, so it was fun. One of the things that I always find kind of fun, especially about the Frasier character, is how, like, yeah, he's the protagonist, but he's also his own worst enemy in so many ways. Right, totally, and like, right. You know, in your scenes, like, you're meant to be fighting over this woman, but it's like, well, who am I supposed to be rooting for? You know, it's, uh, does that make it fun to kind of play that kind of a role? Yeah, absolutely. And it was fun to play off of everybody because it was just everything building off of each other and having a lot of fun. That was the most incredible thing about that show. Everybody had a blast. And it was just fun. Uh, it's interesting that you also mentioned that you were a speech teacher at the time. And I, I feel like I'm going to be now judge my entire interview with you on how I'm talking. Because I'm no, trying to fine. like project and be all, you know, open my mouth and enunciate. But I'm you're actually fine. Terrible, so, uh, I, I want, if we're going through this and I start like slurring my words because I do that, I want you to start correcting Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank Clip you. Clip it up, bud. Clip it up. Okay. <laughs> Are there any, uh, you know, because I do actually have a slur on one side of my mouth, I've learned. So I'm wondering, you know, since you're a speech teacher, what, what would you recommend I do to kind of work on that and, and help me do that less over time? The the sore on your mouth? Uh, slur. I, I kind of like Oh, you slur. Like my, the left side of my face is a little like slightly off sometimes. So my mouth will stay in this weird shape. I, sometimes the words don't come out the right way. So if you have any. You any massage your jaw. Yeah. All right. And you got to do a lot of tongue exercises to get your tongue, you know, things like that. All right, I'm not going to make you do that on camera. I'm going to keep that in mind. Please so don't. You. Don't show that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, now, you also uh, spent some time on the Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about what you did in that film and uh, what your experience was like there? Yeah, it was brief. To be to be really clear, it was brief. It was okay. one day. Um, I had, I had uh, just completed a run of what was called The Invisible Man with Jim Dale. Uh, at Cleveland Playhouse, directed by Frank Dunlop. Uh, and they had uh, worked on, was it Scapino or Barnum? I can't remember, uh, together. And it was a meant to be a pre-Broadway run. Uh, and I got cast in that by a woman who's still casting named Pat McCorkle. Um, and we were all set to go. We had the theater. And then... Uh, the theater owner came to see the show one day in Cleveland and he left at intermission and we all went in at intermission and on the table was a huge New York times with Kathleen Chalfont opening and wit in our theater the next week. So that's how we were told <laughs> that we weren't doing the show. Why I tell you that is because I finished uh, the Thomas Crown Affair, and then Pat McCorkle called me in, and, and she didn't even audition me. She said, "I'm giving you this role uh, because that didn't work out." So here you go. Uh, and I just finished, and I was in New York for a, uh, about two weeks uh, doing other auditions. And so two days later, I got on a. a uh, uh, company bus that they'd hired and we drove to Yonkers where they built a set that was supposed to be the Met. And uh, that's where we shot it. And it was so, it was really quick. It was a long day. It was a whole day for that one scene. Uh, and I, I, I worked with Dennis Leary uh, and I got to see Renee Russo. She was there, but she had finished and Pierce Brosnan was not on the set that day. 
So, but it was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was my first experience being in a big movie. And that's a totally, totally different thing. Cause I think that was maybe a, I mean, you've seen the movie. It's, it's a, it's a long scene, but that chunk of it, maybe five minutes of it was what we shot. And that was all that day. So it's just a lot of wait and go. Yeah. Yeah. And in TV, you shoot 10, 12 pages a day and a movie. They just shoot a page and a half, maybe (laughs) that time. Who knows what they're doing now? So, well, you know, I found something else that was kind of interesting on your resume because now we're talking, you know, TV stuff and also the differences right. between a movie. But you also had a nice recurring character run on Young and the Restless for a bit. You were uh, yeah, a that was really nice. Yeah, yeah. I read. I, I couldn't find the uh, the episodes to watch because, and that's you know, a hard endeavor to try and dive into a soap opera out of the middle of nowhere. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I, I think your character was involved in like trying to revive some character out of a coma or something, right? Yeah, that is such they a soap had... opera thing to do. Yeah. Well, somebody had. Uh, somebody had gone away previously or had died and then they found that character again, but they were reviving her with a new actress. So of course she was in a coma. So my job was to bring her back. So it was a nice like 10 episode arc. And that was really fun. I did guiding light uh, when I was in New York for maybe a day. I was a what they call an under five. I was a receptionist basically. Um, so that was my first real experience doing a, a soap opera. And that's, that's like super fast. They shoot, they shoot an episode a day. Yeah. That's gotta be kind of fun also. And I guess a challenge, but a nice one because you do get to spend, you know, as you mentioned, I think according to IMDB, it's 12 episodes. So whatever it is, like you're getting to spend a lot of time with this character and playing with it and growing into it. So, you know, yeah. for a performer, I mean, how does that feel to be able to do that? And, keeping in mind that it's also a soap opera. So like how much were you able to grow the character in the way you wanted to grow them? Not much, to be honest. Uh, Cause the story was not about me. It was about getting her and they had a very clear trajectory with it. And also, even though it was 12 episodes, it was over eight months. Mm, okay. So I was on maybe a week here and then four weeks later I was back. Um, it was a nice, thing for that eight months because it came and went but it was fun because it was close to home and you know wasn't slinging hash <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's take a step back and let's go back to that very first voyager role now and uh that was in the the sure. two-parter called the killing game uh which is a really great two-parter and so we already mentioned you are a nazi captain and uh, i'm actually going to tie this together to your very last star trek role as well because you came back again as another nazi character uh which is you yeah. I, I don't know if it's a feather in your hat or not. It's such a weird thing to be brought back to be a Nazi twice, but there you go. That's uh, that's J. Paul Bamer right there. <laughs> but absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's a pretty interesting episode, though. I don't know if you were maybe at the time watching any Star Treks or not, but what did you think of the concept of this episode? It's a pretty unique one for for a Star Trek show. I thought it was incredible too, because it kind of blew everything wide open about. Um, the uh what did they call it uh, the holodeck Here I am stupid. the holodeck thank you it blew open that whole holodeck thing and it it sort of made everybody vulnerable which was really exciting and it yeah. was also f- just fun to be part of something that really i think they were trying to explode that show open with that particular episode um and this was really fun. It was a fun episode. 
Uh, did you guys film that like uh, in the Paramount set? Like, where, where was that filmed exactly? Was that outside somewhere, a different location? All of the inside sh- stuff was shot at Paramount. All of the outside location shots, uh, uh, the street shots, those were shot at uh, Universal Studios on their back lot. Okay. Um, and what's what's really interesting about that episode is there's the scene where we're going to shoot Balana uh, for being a traitor. And it's been long enough ago now in California that that was like the last major rain we had. And that whole scene was shot in pouring down rain, which, of course, even though it's pouring, the camera doesn't catch a lot of it. So it's hard to see. Uh, so the guy the whoever was directing, I can't remember, he goes, can you say something in German that's going to be about the rain because they just had to keep going. Um, and it was, so I came more by, I said, verdammt. so anyway. Are you actually fluent in German? Ein bisschen, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ich habe einen, nur ein kleines bisschen Deutsch. I had oh, German in high school growing up. That's what I said. I have, I a, I have a little you. bit of German. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool, though, the fact you had that. So, okay, that, that explains at least a little bit more also why they would want you for that part. Yeah. Well, I, uh, my family is, uh, my, the origins of my family is all German. So Okay. Okay, yeah. I'm only a teeny tiny bit German, but definitely not enough to actually speak the language. So uh, kudos to you for doing that, having oh, that ability. It definitely comes in handy yeah. on a show like Star Trek Voyager when they need, uh, they need German yes, soldiers. It does. Yeah, it does. So, you know. And it, I was also in, uh, uh, there was a recent game. What's it yeah, called? you were in the Call of Duty games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was the German officer in that. Thank you for a call of duty. I should know that. Like, Gotta know your COD. Yeah, you were in Call of Duty. I mean, it's so I guess just being able to actually fluently speak the German and speak it convincingly, that is a, a big, big part of, of becoming a Nazi. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Which I, I apologize. I just can't get over the fact that you were a Nazi twice in Star Trek. It's just, it's such a weird, fun little thing, as odd as it is to say. It's, it's so uh, bizarre, but it's true. It's cool. It was really, I'm, I'm really lucky. A lot of it's just luck. Yeah. You know? Um, and and Ron cast me in that too. Ron Serma cast me in the Enterprise yeah. thing as well. Uh, so just luck. And he kept bringing me in for those kinds of things. And since we are going to smash it together here, you know, the Voyager episode, that was the killing game, as we mentioned. Uh, but the Enterprise, it was, I think, Zero Hour and then Stormfront, which was the season four yeah. premiere. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, let's, let's keep talking a little more about Voyager, though, just because... You know, sure. you got to have a little fight scene with Robert Duncan McNeil. That must have been cool, right? So how much that is you? How much that was the doubles? Uh, uh, all of the close-ups was me, and all of the combat stuff was were, were doubles for both of us. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, you work with Robert Duncan McNeil in those scenes here and there. I mean, this is really your first pro gig, too. So, number one, I mean, that's got to be a little intimidating to be doing a fight scene with a star. Even if you're not doing all the big stunts, you still got to swing a little bit at the guy, right? So, I mean, that's got to be a little yeah, intimidating, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, it was. It was. It was intimidating, but I, I, I was working all the time in the theater, so it, I didn't come at it as a, a newbie. I, I, I kind of knew what I was doing, um, and everybody, everybody was so generous on that set and really kind and. You know, they're all just, everybody just wants to get the job done, you know, uh, and everybody just was really sweet to me. So, I mean, you know, stage combat is one thing and then doing a fight scene on a TV show is a very kind of different thing, I would imagine, especially because you have all these lights, all these cameras, 
Uh, and, you know, that being your first TV gig, too, I mean, that's, to be quite fair, that's a pretty tremendous shoot to be a part of. So, I mean, did you feel a lot of pressure doing that? Was it, Were you nervous at all? Were you anxious about this part? No, I think I was just too naive to be <laughs> nervous and anxious. I was just so excited to be on Star Trek. <laughs> I'm such a doofus. I just, that was the best thing ever, you know? Awesome. And I, 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 and because I was doing a lot of, I mean, I was playing leads in theater. I was a young leading man and that's just what I was doing. And it, it just seemed like a, a, a really nice extension of what I was already doing in the theater. And, and Star Trek is very theatrical. Well, if you could walk me through just one last thing here about that, and that would be the big final yeah. fight scene at the end of the episode, which is, you know, all out craziness. It's all the Starfleet guys coming in. It's you having your final fight. And then all of a sudden, of course, the true heroes of World War II show up, and that's the Klingons. Uh, so, you know, right. if you, do you remember anything about that, that final part and that final battle scene? It came off really hectic. Very little. Very <laughs> little, to be, to be honest. I, I remember... I remember working with uh, Roxanne and the scene with Robert and just very little. I mean, it was so much and it happened so fast. Uh, so I don't remember much about the, the, the last scene. I just remember there was a lot of moving parts and a lot of people and it was just huge, really huge for a TV show. Yeah, it, it definitely felt very, very epic. And, uh, you know, just... Let's see if I can refresh your memory a little bit also about your Enterprise appearance now, because, uh, you know, we see you in those two episodes, uh, but you're basically just in the, the beginning, the first act, if you will, of uh, Stormfront. Uh, and you get right. to have, again, a little bit of an action scene with Scott Bakula, and you get to work with him a little bit uh, on this, you know, nice little bumpy road scene. Uh, so, you know, tell me a little bit about what you remember from from your Enterprise time and hanging out with Scott Bakula. Well, first of all, he's awesome. He Never is heard such otherwise. a good guy. There, he is such a good guy. He's a theater guy. And we had a lot to talk about. Um, oh, no. <laughs> let me hang that back up. <laughs> this is where I shoot my auditions. <laughs> I figured, yeah. I'll, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to cut this part out, but that's just kind of fun. I almost want to leave that in now. <laughs> leave it in. Why not? Well, Scott Bakula is awesome. Uh, he's just a really good guy. He's a theater guy. I think his wife was in musicals. You know, they're just the theater people, and, and that's that's kind of what I'm used to. Um, so we had a lot to talk about right off the bat. And he, he was a musical guy, too. Um, the big thing I remember was it was scheduled to be a half-day shoot, um, which is, you know, it, it's not a very long scene. Um, and we I had gone and... Uh, to shoot, we were on location somewhere out of nowhere, LA. Um, and I, I remember I was waiting in the trailer for like three hours. And finally the guy said, we think he came to the, he came to my trailer and he goes, I think we got it fixed, come on. And apparently the uh, vintage truck <laughs> wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> So they loaded us in the back of the truck. There were two aliens and me and, and Scott. And we were all sitting in the back of the truck. And these poor guys, the aliens, they're covered in appliances from head to toe. It's hot. And we start the scene and the truck wouldn't go. So it took them another two or three hours to figure out how to get that going. That, the truck was just the big part of the day. 
So I think the half day turned into like almost a 10 hour day for everybody. <laughs> so, uh, but the thing I remember most was Scott was just so great. He was right there the whole time. He never seemed like flummoxed by things not working. What are you going to do about it? And uh, we just had a good time, had a lot of laughs and talked and it was a lot of fun. I do find it kind of fun that your character wanted to go to Hollywood and he was making all those jokes like Betty Grable, you know. He's I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> well, you know, I actually want to ask uh, a little bit about this character. I guess both Nazis sure. really, uh, again, such a weird thing to say, such an odd episode we're talking about here. But, uh, you know, in your first appearance in Voyager, you're a Nazi, but you don't have a German accent. You're just basically yourself, your own accent. Here in Enterprise, you do have a little bit of a German accent. So right. was there a reason like why one had it and one didn't? That was a choice from production. Okay. Uh, and they were very clear they didn't want, in Voyager, they didn't want accents. But then when we got to Enterprise, they did. So that's what I did. All right. Good to know. Uh- <laughs> Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Naff, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row and from our car windows we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. We just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly 
who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lord X or Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. All right, so Jay Paul, you know, we're moving on now from our Voyager and our, our Nazi time, if you will. We're going to move on from that part here. And by the way, I'm going, to, I'm going to keep tally because I noticed, you know, our Nazi captain, as we mentioned, he doesn't make it out of this episode in Voyager because the Klingons come and they give him the Klingon goodbye. Uh, and likewise, we can presume that the Nazi and Enterprise also didn't make it out of their live. Based oh, on no, the he's he. I remember that I got killed in that episode. OK, <laughs> so for a fact, both these guys are out. Let's see if yeah. we can tally up of uh, yeah. how many survivors you get here. So uh, <laughs> let's go back to Voyager, though, because your, your next appearance was one season later in the episode Drone, where yeah. you played the Borg named one. So, yeah. I mean, to be fair, I got to admit, too, it's, it's kind of rare, I think, where guest actors get brought back that quickly. You know, like it's that's a pretty quick turnaround to come back again. So how did that happen? It it's really quick. I think it was was it the f- second episode that's one season? of the earlier ones in season five. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was literally, I think, six months after I shot um, Killing Game, and when I went in, uh, Ron said, "I'm bringing you in because Brian Fuller." wanted this, you to be seen for this. Uh, Brian wrote the episode um, along with somebody else, I think, but he was the main guy. Um, and I said, are they going to even take me seriously for this? And he said, yeah, it's no problem because you're going to be in full appliances, uh, head to toe. Nobody's going to know who you are. Of course, everybody knew who I was um, from killing. I mean, people who, were fans of the show, figured it out really quickly. But um, I, I think it was a really lucky stroke that that I got brought in for it and really lucky that I actually got it. And hey, I know that Nazi, he's a Borg now. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, pretty funny. Yeah, right? Totally different characters, though. Totally, totally a different mindset completely for each character. Yeah. I want to explore that mindset a little bit. I think that kind of begins with the makeup process because, I mean, this is a Borg character, but a pretty unique Borg also because he's uh, one part Starfleet technology, one part this futuristic uh, hollow emitter. It's, you know, that's all the techno babble, but, you know, he's a pretty unique kind of Borg. And uh, let's just first talk about that makeup process because that makeup looked like that was tough to deal with. That was a lot to go on. Yeah. Um, Well, first of all, it wasn't just the makeup because the outfit, was a totally new, uh, Bob Blackman uh, designed a totally new uh, concept outfit for this character. Um, And I had to go and have a whole body cast made, uh, including my head. So I I went to someplace out in uh, the Valley and I think I stood for an hour and a half while they, or two hours while they wrapped my body in um, uh, gauze with plaster on it 
uh, about that thick. Uh, and I had my hands up out on the side on two posts, slightly bent, uh, with my legs spread, so that because they did my whole body. Uh, and then they also did my face and head. And that took about two hours and they cut me out. And then they took that and they filled that with uh, uh, plaster and took that off. And then they built the outfit out of neoprene, um, which doesn't breathe at all. Uh, and I recall that the the outfit, uh, my everything was covered in neoprene and up to my neck. And then the makeup, I can't remember which eye, maybe this one. I can't remember. I think so, yeah. uh, this eye and this cheek uh, had appliances on it. And then the, the cowl came down over to my nose. And then, so the only part of my face that you could see that was real was like that. And everything, that's the only part of me that was out. Wow. Um, so that, that was that part, just getting that set. The cowl itself, uh, they had, I think, in four or five pieces. So there was a piece that went like this, and then there was a piece that did this, this, this. And then they even had a piece that, I, I think it changed my chin a bit. I can't remember. And then they had to paint it each day. Uh, partly because, because I was covered so fully, uh, the sweat would destroy the latex. So they had to redo it every day. Uh, so from beginning to end of the makeup process, which didn't include the outfit, uh, just the makeup itself, which then went down to here, I think that was about a six or seven hour process just, just for the makeup alone. And then the getting in the outfit for the first couple days, I mean, we only shot eight days, but for the first couple of days, it, it was solid neoprene, which doesn't breathe and it doesn't really stretch kind of like a, a diving uh, thing. Uh, they had to like pull that sucker on. Uh, and that took about an, an hour to get in. So that's before we even hit the stage. That, that's intense. That is the most intense makeup session we've heard about on this podcast ever. That's And I, I at the end of the week, it, because it was so all consuming, I lost 20 pounds of weight uh, just God. from the sweat. So when you see the episode, if you look at the episode, you can tell by how I'm able to move which which scenes were shot early because the the costume didn't give as much uh as opposed to the later scenes shot later on in the shoot just because I'd lost so much weight I I you know I wasn't heavy anyway but I lost 20 pounds of water weight so my body had more room to move and I had more freedom in the outfit so in the end, I guess that that actually kind of worked out in your favor a little bit. As as much as you probably don't want to lose that water weight, it kind of helped a little bit. It did because I was able to move more freely, and it also helped. They did. We didn't shoot a lot out of order. 
I mean, some of it was out of order and you can, you can, I can sort of tell. Um, but because it, the, the costume and I, by virtue of having lost that weight, was able to have more freedom. It also helped kind of the arc of the character who became more confident and more free as the episode went along. Oh, I like that. So you really used it as a tool to become yeah. a little better. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, you basically just answered this question I was going to ask too, just about how uncomfortable it was, but I would assume it was pretty uncomfortable until you did lose those 20 pounds, right? It, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't so much uncomfortable because it was made for my body. It was specifically made for my body. What was uncomfortable about it was that it didn't, it didn't want to move. Mm. Um, so when I was able to lose the, the weight just from sheer sweating, I remember the first day when they took off my shoes, the guy took off the shoes and he had a bucket there and he dumped the shoe with water just sweat that had poured out from that day. And I drank and drank and drank and drank because, you know, you're, you don't want to lose that much. So I mean, yeah, I got to ask, because even you got to stay hydrated. They don't want you to pass out. They don't want you to get anything worse happening to you. Yeah. But I also would imagine going to the bathroom ain't going to happen that easily. So, uh... well, I, I got to tell you, you haven't asked, but I'm going to tell you how Jerry Ryan was. She is so sweet. And the, the first the first day I was on the set, she came up to me and she put her hands on my shoulders and she said, no matter what they tell you, they don't want to stop because it takes too much time. If you have to pee, stop, get out of it and pee, do it. I'll back you up. And she was just the sweetest, dearest lady to me, just the sweetest. Yeah, you guys had an excellent rapport on screen also, uh, because I guess, you know, we'll jump around a little bit this character because there's a lot sure. to dissect here with uh, with one. But, you know, basically, uh, this can be almost a two-part question, you know, because basically the character of one that you're playing is almost like an infant trying to learn his way. And Jerry yeah. Ryan at 7 to 9, she becomes a very maternal character, which is a little unusual for her still at this point in the series. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'd like to hear what it was like to work with her and especially work alongside her in this very, very fascinating character study. She was just, first of all, she's so sweet and genuine. There's not a, there's nothing fake about her. She's just lovely. And she really took on, I mean, telling me that on the first, she really took on being a mama to me. We just got along smashingly. In fact, I uh, had gone back to shoot um, a Deep Space Nine uh, the following year I think I can't remember and I I went to knock on her door to say hi and she goes who is it? and I said it's it's Jay Paul and I heard her scream and she threw open the door and just gave me a big hug and she said it's so good to see you um so we got along we got along smashingly she was just divine everybody was divine on that show and they of course remembered me from the Nazi episode and most of them came came to me and said it's really good to have you back so that was nice yeah, and it must have been nice, too, to actually just be on the bridge this time and see this actual Star Trek set, because you didn't really get to do that previously. So now you're actually, you know, here's, here's no. a kid growing up wanting to be on Star Trek. You're now on the bridge. What was that like for you? Well, my first day showing up for makeup, I was one of the first people because I had the longest uh, makeup process. And I think I showed, I can't, I, my memory is spotty, 
But I want to say my call was four o'clock in the morning, maybe three. So I could hit set by 10. And I showed up and it was very dark, of course. And one of the production assistants met me and he said, uh, do you want a coffee or anything? I said, yeah, I got a coffee. And he goes, so go in there and on stage, there's a, a crafty service thing there. You can go and get your coffee or I can get it for you. And I said, no, I'll get it. So I was uh, the only one on stage that at that time of day. And I got to go to the Voyager bridge set. <laughs> and I, I sat in the captain's chair and I got it. to say engage. That was fun. <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm getting the goosebumps to hearing you talk about it. Cause I can tell this is like a moment you really, really love. Totally. And in fact, I, um, I, I uh, had, I joined Instagram. I'm not really on it very much, but I, I've mainly been able to reconnect with a lot of people in my past. And someone from middle school reminded me, you know, you said, you were going to be on Star Trek and we all thought you were full of shit. Sorry. And, uh, and she said, you know what? You did it. You got to, you did it. So that's nice. It, it's like, it really was a dream come true that and playing Hamlet. I got to do it all. So really did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that's such a cool memory to have. Uh, so, you know, I'd like to hear about, you know, this is, I'd imagine the very first time you did any kind of prosthetics to this level. I think that's a fair assessment to say, right? Yeah, first time ever. Yeah, so first time you see yourself in the mirror, what do you think? Does a character click with you all of a sudden? Are you just like, wow, and you're just kind of fanboy in that moment? What's what's the process for you mentally at that point? Um, the makeup helps. The, the costume helped the most. Um, but I had a really... I, I had a really strong connection with that character, that... To me, that character was like very clear um, and very focused on what he was doing and what he was trying to figure out and and just the openness that he had to be present to what they were up against. And I, I really connected very strongly with it. And with Jerry, which also was a very powerful connection and really helped me connect with that character. Yeah. I mean, you do excellent work in this episode. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful episode, great storytelling. And uh, especially again, that relationship between seven of nine and one, I mean, it feels very real and and it's, again, it's such a weird thing to say, I'm going to say it a lot because we're talking Star Trek, but in particular, it's the relationship between a Borg who's now become a mother to another Borg. I mean, that's what a unique, unique thing to have. Um, yeah. And, and you a know, Borg who's a real baby. Yeah. Right? And, you know, a that's kind of interesting about him. Too, babe in the woods. You know, comparing him to like, let's say, I don't know if you know the character Hugh from the next generation. Of course I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and Jonathan Del Arco's, uh, you know, iteration of that character, you know, it's, it's a little bit different because he's pre-existing Borg. He's been out there. He kind of knows the rules of being a Borg and he has to almost unlearn that. Uh, but he yeah. also, you know, he's got a different journey than what you have here. You know, in your case, uh, it's fresh out of the womb. Essentially you are a, a blank slate trying to learn this, but you still have these kind of inklings of what it is meant to be a Borg, uh, yeah. that you're kind of resisting. And not only that, you know, you are a tragic hero by the end of this episode, you know, spoiler alert folks, but you are a tragic hero. So there's a lot to this character, very complex role. Uh, I guess I'd like to kind of see if we can break down 
the character and what you thought of this journey and how you got from point A to point B. Sure. What do you want to know? You know, it's, it's such a big question, isn't it? Uh, let's just take us take from the top, you know, cause you are, let's say beginning of the episode, you're the baby end of the episode. You're now this mature character. Yeah. How did you find it through, through the words, through the script? How did you get through that script to embody what was being written on the page? What? That curtain's going to get assimilated. It should, shouldn't it? Yeah. We should keep that in. Um, yeah, I'm totally keeping that one in because I can't re-ask that question. <laughs> Anybody who's on the audio version is going to have no idea what's happening, but uh, Jay Paul's curtain just fell down. It's curtains for you, Jay Paul. Oh, man. Curtains for me. So the thing about that episode is that, first of all, it's a really, uh, I think, a it's a really well-written episode, and it's very clear about the lesson it's trying to give seven of nine and who she is and what she is and where her place is Um, by virtue of watching somebody else sort of going through the same question, but at a different perspective. And the thing for me that seemed really clear about the episode was that all along there were these signposts of transition that one was going through. The biggest, of course, being the connection that Neelix and Seven hooked him up to that was kind of like a big awakening Hmm. for him um, to, to kind of get where he fit, who he was, and what was going on in the world that they're in. Um, and that, that to me, that the writing of that show was very clear at each juncture where he progressed. And, and, and he, like Seven of Nine, was always questioning in that episode. Uh, and for her, generally, I think, throughout the series, what his place was and where he fit and what was possible next. And I really so. like your take on it. I like that observation as well about seven and kind of just mirroring that journey essentially. Um, so yeah, just compliments to you. Cause that was a job well done. I mean, the script was amazing and what you did with it too, you really brought it to life in such a Thanks. really refreshing way. Um, Thanks. So let's jump into Deep Space Nine now, because that was your next right. role following this. Uh, and this time around, you're a Cardassian named Vornar. So right. I would imagine walking out of being one and going into this and being a Cardassian, you're just like, ah, oh, a few hours of makeup cheer, Pfft, no big deal, right? Well, how was that for Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Uh, pretty similar. Uh, 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 they put me in, it was a stock uniform, so it wasn't specifically made for me, but it was a bit bigger, and that was easier to move in. Again, that was a very brief, episode for me because I think I think it was only a half page scene uh, but I had I had known I had met Casey previously um, and uh, Casey as well as Roxanne and I all had worked at Arena Stage in Washington DC I had played uh, Septimus in Arcadia right after it had closed in in New York. So we were the first regional production. So we all knew a lot of the same people. And I got to, you know, we talked about that a little bit. Um, So that was nice to have that relationship in common. Uh, 
But for me, that episode was really, really fast because uh, that was the last episode of the the show. Or one of the last, yeah. One of the, wasn't one of the last. last one, but it was very close to the end. Yeah. And they were winding down and they were really moving through. Uh, so that, I, I recall that scene being like, wow, that was fast. <laughs> I went in, I got, you know, the four hours of makeup. Uh, Cause that again was pieces that had a cowl, but then they had pieces here and the pieces here, you know, it was a lot of pieces. Not a lot of painting like the Borg, because that was all very specifically painted each day. Um, but I remember that episode feeling like, God, I can't believe that's over already. Is that like one of those episodes where you come in and you spend pretty much more of your time in the makeup chair than you do actually on set? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to kind of go back to what you said about, you know, having known Casey Biggs beforehand. And this is kind of just a general acting question. Mm-hmm. When you, let's say you already have an actual rapport with the actor who's playing this part that you're in front of. Does that help you perform better? Do you think Do you perform oh, different, absolutely. Or maybe not better? I don't want to say better, but do you perform differently when you actually already know this person and you feel, you know, there's less of a barrier between you two? I think that helps. Yeah. I think that helps a lot. And that's, that's why when you, when you're in the theater, you don't, TV and and film, that's a very specific thing. You go, you shoot, you're done. Uh, But in theater, you start, you have a table read, you start rehearsing. Uh, Some shows you rehearse for six weeks, some for two, but you have time where you actually work together and get to know each other. So the barriers sort of come down during that time and everybody builds a, a relationship of trust. Um, and in TV, you're just kind of, here you go. You're in the makeup, go, go. And you maybe get to rehearse for camera once in the middle of makeup. And then you go and you get finished makeup and then you shoot. Uh, so it's very quick. Um, so it was, it was nice to be able to have, to be in a conversation with somebody already about something else that the barrier was just gone and there you are. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. That makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, just also to go back to something as we move on to the next uh, role you got in your Star Trek history here, I want to just keep my tally going. Cause as you mentioned, two Nazis, they don't make it out. One tragic hero. He sacrifices himself to save the crew. So we're still at Owen three uh, and Vornar. I think it's safe to say once the dominion found out what happened, he's also going to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, let's go to the one who survives. And, let's uh, do yeah, what a great episode here. Wow, I mean, you got to be really part of some amazing episodes, but this one, uh, this is Carbon Creek in Enterprise. A lot of folks say it's one of the best of the season, if not one of the best of the entire series, which is a very high compliment. And uh, yeah, so you are a Vulcan. You are Mestral the Vulcan. Yeah. So how did you get cast for this part? Well, oddly enough, one would think uh, that... I was able to just step right in and do it. And they offered it to me with open arms and gracious hellos and cans of caviar and champagne. No. Um, uh, Ron Serma brought me in for that. Uh, and I auditioned for the director whose name I, I just can't remember. Uh, Really nice guy, really good director. Can't remember his name. Shame on me. Um, I auditioned. 
And then I left. And it was one of those things where I thought, well, I guess I didn't get that. And then Ron called me that night and he said, look, uh, they're concerned that you played these two big things in uh, Voyager and they're concerned that whatever they were concerned about. Uh, and the director was very concerned that uh, concerned that uh, I wouldn't be able to pull off the vision of what he had, whatever. Long story short, I think I auditioned six times for that part. Uh, and it was interesting because it, I, you know, I'm, Ultimately, I got it, which is the best thing. But the great thing was to go and audition six times. That doesn't happen. That hardly happens anymore, period. You're lucky to get one audition. Um, so to go in six times and to get to work with the director each time. And I think Ron was really, really, really pushing for me um, to, to be able to do that. Uh it helped the director be more secure that I was going to be able to, to do it. And I think um, because Mistral is sort of a throwback to old Trek Vulcan, I think they were really, they wanted to make sure they had the guy who could pull it off. Uh, and I think, I think I did. I would definitely agree with that sentiment, Jay Paul. Yeah, you absolutely pulled it off. And it also helps that you had an amazing cast working with you, an amazing core group of actors you performed with, which was... Amen. Yeah, you had Jolene Jolene Vlalik, and you had Michael Krawick as well. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, what do you remember about working with those two? Just really good people. I I, I remember we were the first episode shot that season. Okay. Uh, And I I remember being on the bus, uh, the van with Jolene to to the set and she just was so happy that she had had a break because you know they were shooting it's not like now where you do 10 episodes they it was a big 26 episode season and you know that's months and months and months of at that time 15 16 17 hour days uh so that's that's exhausting if you're a, a series regular. And I think they had just come back from their hiatus and she was so rested and I think glad to be back and not exhausted. Uh, and she was just, she was a stitch. She was very funny and just very sweet. And I want to just also throw a compliment to uh, her as well, because, you know, we're used to seeing Jolene as to Paul, but watching Carbon Creek, I get lost in the fact that it's not to Paul. Like it, right? it really was a second character. It was a completely separate character that she was doing. It was a really wonderful job by her. Uh, yeah. And yeah, you know, the other thing too, and you, you just mentioned this and regular listeners of our show know that on Star Trek shows, rehearsal is not really a word in their vocabulary. It's kind of just, we got to go. Uh, and, you know, in the case of this episode, you know, working with Michael, working with Jolene, you guys became this sort of Vulcan family. And uh, yeah. You had wonderful rapport together. The way you worked off each other, the way you played off each other, it was really great. And it showed that you guys were in almost, you know, an actual family unit. So I'd like to hear, how did you find that? How did you become such a convincing family? Not not even just that, but a convincing Vulcan family, because that, sir, is the challenge. <laughs> well, p- mostly it's a lot of it's the writing. Just a lot of it's the writing, because the writers do a lot. They supply a lot of they supply everything you need. 
uh, and especially for Trek shows. And part of it helped that we were shooting on location in Big Bear. So we were, we weren't in LA, we weren't at home, we were in a hotel, we were with people. That's how we, that's how we started the shoot. We shot all the location stuff first. Um, so it was, I think just like being boy scouts and girl scouts at camp and just having a good time, you know? It definitely showed. And, you know, to go back to childhood, Jay Paul, growing up watching Star Trek, saying he wants to be on the show, you're putting on Spock ears right now. So what is yeah. that like for you? That, what, what, was a, what was a crazier feeling for you, going on the, uh, on the Voyager Bridge or putting on the Spock ears? They were both really big moments for me. being Because, I, you know, that was my touchstone to being a kid was Star Trek. The thing about um, Mistral was when I when I got the part. Uh, Michael Westmore wanted to have an ear fitting, which <laughs> that's an odd thing to say. We want to have an ear fitting, so I I drove to Paramount, and I I. Uh, went to the makeup studio in Paramount and met with Michael and we sat down and we talked a little bit and he goes, all right, I want to, I want to try these on. And he, he pulled out, I think there were four sets of ears. And I think they wanted to, I think they just wanted to do an ear test with me because I was such a prominent character that they didn't, it's not like you're shooting a background, you're shooting someone who's going to be close up all the time. And they wanted to make sure they had the proper ear fit so that it it wouldn't make you crash your car if you were driving, if you were. Um, so I sat down, we talked, and he pulled out these this box with these ears, and he goes, So we're gonna try these on. And he tried one on, he goes, No, this is this is too small. And then he pulled out another one and he goes, This is gonna sound like Goldilocks. He goes, No, this one's too large. And then he pulled out this third ear and he put it on my ear and he said, hmm, that's Leonard's. Oh. <laughs> uh, so for me, that was, that was amazing. That was amazing. That's amazing for me to even hear that story. I, I can tell, you know, again, we just talked about how it was for you to step onto the bridge for the first time of a starship, but now you're, you're wearing Leonard's ears. That's got to yeah. just fill you with so much emotion. Yeah. And history. Yeah. Wow. And it it put me in the presence of, well, I got I got some big shoes to step into here. You know, you can't repeat or copy what he supplied. Nobody can do that, but uh it was a big a big I gotta step up. You certainly did. And you know, so normally when I talk to people who have played the Vulcans, I ask, you know, uh, what is it like to have to be an actor who's emoting without emoting because you're a Vulcan? But uh in your case, interestingly enough, you know, the fact that you played one almost kind of gave you a little bit of uh, I guess almost a warm up to becoming the Vulcan. Yeah. So uh I guess you know on that note, I'd like to hear how did you learn to be this Vulcan? And I will also add to it, Mistral is kind of interesting and this is just now we're going to get nerdy here. Uh, but my headcanon is almost like maybe he's an ancestor of a Romulan or something because Romulans are a little bit more emotional. But that's that's an aside. But <laughs> you know, for, for your character, though, I mean, it felt like he was becoming more human 
as you went on in a lot of ways. He was more open to the emotions. So I would, again, another big question about the performing here, but uh, what is the journey of Mistral going from Vulcan to now almost becoming a human? I I always felt like that character was always kind of outside of everybody else looking in because it, yes, he's a Vulcan and yes, he's logical, but he was also curious and wanting to know more than just what the logic of the thing was, just wanting to know what was possible outside of everything and just open to taking in information and not standing on the side of logic and keeping a distance. I think he was more in, I think that character just wanted to participate. Does that make sense? Yeah. And yeah, I also want to mention too, because we haven't mentioned uh, one of your other guest actors in this episode, which is Anne Cusack. Yeah. And uh, you got to spend a lot of time with her. And also Mr. All was quite curious about her and even got to get on stage. Uh, so, you know, let's just talk about her. How was it to, uh, what was it like to work with Anne? We had a great time and we got along really well. We've, we've stayed in touch somewhat, you know, life moves on, of course. And it's been, God, I can't even remember. That was at least 20 years ago, right? Close Almost 20 time. years ago. Yeah. Uh, and we've stayed in touch intermittently. We just had a great time. And I, I remember uh, she and I and, oh, the kid who played her son. What's his name? He did Pumpkin. He did a movie, Pumpkin. Anyway. Um, Good movie also. Yeah. Uh, he's a terrific kid. Adult male now. He's not a kid anymore. Um, <laughs> I remember we were all sitting in the pool and Anne turned to me and she goes, man, this is the life. This is the moment. This is it. That's all we got. Yeah, it's you know? such a great episode. And, you know, just kind of look at everything in retrospect here, you know, of all these appearances that you had, you've had some pretty meaty appearances. Some, you know, were not quite as meaty as others, but you've got, oh. a, had, a, you've got a few that are quite memorable and quite robust. Uh, so I guess start this question this way first. Did you watch yourself in these episodes when they first aired? You know, I watched, uh, I did watch Killing Game and Drone uh, because those were my first big TV things. And, you know, you want to watch. Um, I didn't see uh, Carbon. Did I see Carbon Creek right away? I can't. I was still doing a lot of regional theater. Basically, what that means is when the shows were on, uh, if I was working, I I, I couldn't see them because I was on stage. Right. Uh, But the first two I remember seeing. Yeah. So of all your roles then, yeah, I don't necessarily want to ask what your favorite is because that's a little bit of a blasé question, although I do want to know that. But uh, I guess if not your favorite, what was the most meaningful character to you? What's the one that stuck with you this long? There are two. It's one and Mistral. Both of those really, really. I mean, the killing game was incredible because it was my first big deal. But those two, those two were particularly, particularly powerful kind of dream fulfillment moments in my life. 
And you did use the word connection earlier, I believe, with one, in fact. So, uh, you know, I'd like to know what parts of you did you put in one and in Mistral? Where is J. Paul Bamer hiding in these characters? I don't know. If, I don't know if they're. I don't know if I'm hiding so much in those characters. Is... You're not hiding, but where does uh, the real life person underneath all that makeup leak into them? Gosh, I just think in my curiosity and openness to new things and I hope, I hope I haven't gotten too old in my life where that's no longer possible, but um, just the, the wonder. Cause that's, that's the thing that I think both of those characters had is an incredible sense of wonder at life. Good answer. Yeah. And uh, you know, since you're a theater person, I can quote six and say that uh, you're the one who survived Mistral is the one who survived. Yeah. He is the survivor. Uh, we're six, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, uh, you know, besides that, that those were your, your television Star Trek appearances, but your time in Trek did not end there because no. you, you came back. Oh, yes, you did. You came back as a Klingon. You got to wear the Klingon makeup in the Klingon Academy game. Wow. Which is like, yeah. I knew a little bit about it, but I did actually go in and watch the cinematics on YouTube to try and like find you and see what was going on. And like, they got some heavy hitters to reprise their roles in this wow. video game for like PC of all things. You got David Warner, Christopher Plummer. I know you didn't get to work with them face to face. Maybe you got to spend some time with them on set perhaps, but uh, yeah, let's talk about Melkor here. Uh, the makeup, what you did, what it was like to do this kind of a really weird, unique Star Trek role. Uh, that again was super fast. Yeah. That okay. was like boom, boom, boom. And I remember the makeup was really fun. Again, it was like a four-hour day, and that was like a factory mm. because there were so – it was just all Klingons. Um, so I don't remember much about it uh, because it was so fast, and I was only on for one day, except that as I was walking from my makeup trailer to the set, Christopher Plummer – was coming out. We almost bumped into each other and he got the biggest grin on his face. And he said, Hey, I'm Chris. And I said, Hey, I'm Jay Paul. And he goes, nice to meet you. That was my meeting with, uh, I can't remember his name on in uh, undiscovered country right now, but I, I grew up with him as captain von Trapp. So yes, yes. that was my meeting with captain von Trapp. That's some royalty right there. That's some Hollywood royalty. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and you know, we also you did a few voices in the Star Trek Bridge Commander game, which I don't know if you're going to remember any of that, but I imagine that's no. even faster paced. <laughs> I don't remember any of that. <laughs> yeah, that is like a real footnote. But I mean, you have done some VO here and there. So, you know, as a guy who's done theater, who's done TV, who's done film and has done VO, what's your preference to your role? I mean, you know, what do you prefer to do if you had a choice of just one of those things? Gosh, I just want to work. Yeah, that's that's the truth. I just want to work. Uh, I do a lot of VO. I, I record a lot of books on tape uh, uh, and I have a home studio where I record. I'm recording right now. Um, not right now, but uh, uh, through the day I record, um, which is nice. The The great thing about doing voiceover right now in particular in our world is that for the past two years, it's something that I've been able to actually 
work <laughs> uh, because it's it stayed operative, and especially because I was at home working. So that was a very lucky stroke. I mean, it's thanks to the horribleness that is the pandemic that this podcast exists. So I can very much sympathize <laughs> that sentiment. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, well, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, we have one other, I think, big sci-fi franchise to talk about with your career, Jay Paul, and that's the Orville, because you got to be on three episodes of that. And yeah. yeah, like you just you just must be like the Vitruvian man of makeup. You must have the perfect face and body for it, because on, on the Orville, they stuck you in all sorts of crazy prosthetics and makeup, because you got to be yeah. a Navarian. Uh, there's uh, another Krill character as well. These are no slouches when it comes to sitting in the makeup chair, but... It is 20 years later than what you did on Star Trek. So what's changed? That's incredible that you bring that up because it is 20 years later and the technology for doing it has increased wildly. I think for the Navarian ambassador, that was maybe two and a half, three hours. Really? That's it. Mm -hmm. And the Krill, um, that was a slightly different uh, thing. And it, it wasn't because of the makeup. It was because they had a makeup crew on the second season and then they had a different makeup crew for the first part of the third season i think that shifted i don't know uh but because that shift occurred there was a there was a learning curve that they were involved in so that changed uh the experience from the second to the third season uh so the makeup from the third season was a, a bit longer well, you know, we're talking about the application process to put it on your face, but I think probably the thing that's changed the most, you could correct me if I'm wrong, would be the amount of time to take it off safely. Has that been something you notice has changed? Uh, I want to say, I, I want to say yes, but a, 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 a cautious one, because for one, uh, they couldn't save anything. Oh, wow. Was that a At the end of the day, uh, for one in Star Trek. Oh, for one, okay, yeah, yeah. Because that, because because of I sweated so much, none of the appliances, they had to redo those every day. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. That's a lot. Um, and that, that, that was time, hence why it took so long, because they had to repaint it each day. Uh, for the Navarian ambassador and the Krill, they were able to really easily, because most of that stuff was, that covered everything from here, actually, even my nose, a lot, uh, you know, pieces. They were able to pull a lot of that off and save it for the next day. So the painting they accomplished on the first day, they were just able to touch up and reapply the appliances. So that that was very time-saving. Now, I want to ask you a little bit, too, about working with Seth MacFarlane on the show and Adrian Pilecki. Uh, and, you know, too, we hear it so much, and so many Star Trek fans think that the Orville is kind of like the second coming of that era of Star Trek that you were in. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I personally, I've got mixed thoughts on the Orville, but, uh, you know, I would like to hear your memories of being on set and working with those people. Um, I didn't work so much with Adrian. Yeah. But I did work with Seth, and he's, a, he's just a great guy. He's just a great guy. It's interesting. I, um, for the first season, they brought me in and I met, I, I went to the casting director, uh, and I auditioned and what happened was I got a call from my agent and I was on lunch break from jury duty. And he said, I got this audition for you. It's tomorrow. 
And I said, I, I don't know if I can go. I'm on jury duty. And he goes, can you see if they'll let you out? So I went back after lunch and I went to the bailiff and I said, I'm wondering if I can ask the judge a favor because I was an alternate. And he goes, let me check. So I went in and the judge was there and the, the two sides were there and he was seeing people for requests. And he goes, so you want to go audition, huh? And I said, yeah, I, I, I'd like to audition. And he goes, why should I let you do this? And I said, because uh, quite honestly, this case will be over in a week. I'm committed to doing it. I'm here. And I said, and I was very blunt with him. I said, I didn't want to be here. You knew that. I said, uh, but I, in our meeting with the two lawyers and you, I said, it's very clear you're going to take me in. So uh, let's do this. I'm all for it. And I said, I'll show up. And and I was doing a play at the time. Uh, And the judge said, if I let you do this, what will this mean? And I think this was more instructional for the guy they were trying. I said, well, it's a very big guest star role. Uh, and it could possibly recur. So it would be life-changing for me. And he goes, all right, good luck. See you the next day. So he let me off for that day. And I auditioned. And I didn't get that particular role. Um uh, but I got to go meet Seth this time and uh, it was way out in Santa Monica and I knew he was a fan of Star Trek. So I took one of my uh, baseball cards of one and I did the audition. And when I was finished, he goes, that was really good. He, and I said, uh, thank you very much. And I said, uh, I I know you're a fan of Star Trek. And he goes, I am indeed. And I said, so I brought this for you. So I handed him the card and he goes, wow, who's this guy? And I said, that's, uh, I was a Borg. I was seven of nine's baby. And he goes, that's really cool. Um, So this wasn't for the Navarian ambassador, but he kept bringing, I think I auditioned for four other episodes and I, they, they kept bringing me in, which was really nice. And then I got the Navarian ambassador. Yeah. Um, so he's just a really, he's a good guy. He's very clear on what he's doing uh, with the show and with, with what he's doing in the business as well. So he's a really smart guy. Um, and it was fun. It was sort of like being on Star Trek, but not at all. Yeah, it is a quite different kind of show. And, Even though uh, Brandon Braga, uh, was also part of it. And I think that helped. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of uh, Trek alumni on that show, in fact. And I yeah. want to bring up one that you got to work with. Um, maybe you remember, maybe you don't. Um, and he also is a Trek Untold alumni. He's been on our podcast. Uh, when you were a Krill, when you were the Krill priest, John Fleck. Yeah. You. And yeah, we had a great chat on this podcast also. Uh, did you get a chance to hang out with him much? Absolutely. Yeah. He was awesome. like? he's a, yeah, he's a cool guy. We sat and we talked a lot and we have some friends in common. So that was nice. And uh, we talked before because uh, I had gone to see something at uh, Disney Hall with another friend who knew him from Star Trek. And he goes, oh, you got to come over here and meet Jay Paul. So we talked and he's a good guy. He's a really good guy. 
All right, so Jay Paul, that is your Star Trek career in a nutshell, and it's a pretty big nutshell because, uh, man, you did so much amazing work, really. Uh, but let's kind of just do Thank a quick you. overview of, of your entire career, if you will, and let's just do lightning round of questions, starting off with this. So no time to think. Just got to answer. Okay. Best gig you ever had and worst gig you ever had? Oh, God, the best gig I ever had was uh, one on Voyager and Mistral on Deep Space Nine, and the worst gig I ever had, uh-oh, was a show I did. Uh, I can't even remember the name of it. I've wiped it out of my brain. Uh, it was a theater show, and I, I it was terrible. Terrible. <laughs> and we're not going to name names because we want to make sure you keep working. So, yeah, we're not going to. Absolutely. Right. Uh, a moment from your performing career that was most challenging for you, but became the most rewarding. Gosh, uh, two. And, and both of these are for the just sheer volume of line learning. Um, I played uh, Heisenberg in Copenhagen uh, in Utah at uh, Pioneer Theater Company. It's a three-hander and I just had a third of the play. And if you don't know the play, it just goes round and round and round on the iterations of what this conversation was about the German development of the nuclear bomb. Yes, I was Heisenberg, another German scientist. Um, and the other one uh, was playing Hamlet. Um, sheer volume, and it, it's Hamlet. Um, and I, I played it in Dallas where my parents are, were at the time, and they came every night. And we had 2,500 people a night because it was outside. And one night, I Hamlet says to Horatio, my father, methinks I see my father. And I said, I said to Horatio, I said, my father. And I turned my head and there was my dad. And I said, methinks I see my father. And I just spontaneously burst into tears because Hamlet's father is dead, of course, at this point. And I just was hit by the profundity of that. Anyway, wow. blah. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a very real thing to feel. That's, that's a pretty amazing one of a kind thing to happen. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And shout out to my parents. Cause I know they're listening and watching also. So yeah, shout out to them. Hey. Shout out to hey, all the parents. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, most valuable piece of advice that someone ever told you about life or about acting that you still think about and use today. Oh gosh. The most important thing is, this is the moment. This is it. This is all you get. All right, that's solid. And last thing for today, Jay Paul, best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe. And you're a pretty big part of that universe. The best thing for me is that it was a dream come true. And most people don't get to have their dream come true. So I'm a really lucky guy. And I always love doing these shows and I can tell the guests that, you know, the boyhood dream was realized and yeah, you got to live that, which is such an amazing thing, such an amazing thing to experience. And really yeah. your roles have left such an indelible mark on the Star Trek universe. I mean, wow. people, they know one, they, they know that character. They know Mestral. People still talk about that character and what happened to him afterwards. Uh, you know, you've done some truly amazing work, not just in Star Trek, but everything else you've done. Uh, you know, I wish I knew more about your theater work to even, you know, pick your brain about that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's been, been real wonderful to talk with you today, and thank you so much for being so generous with your stories and all your knowledge, uh, and especially just, you know, best of all, the fact that you're a Star Trek fan. That part is always the coolest part. To know that someone 
is doing these roles that it meant so much to them also. So that's just really great. So Jay Paul, uh, wish you much success. Uh, bless. He, <laughs> there you go. Much success <laughs> in all your things. Red lolly, yellow lolly, red lolly, yellow lolly. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms, is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network, and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.